If you would, please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. We're going to be in the first 14 verses of chapter 3 this morning. As we turn to God's Word, let's once again turn to Him in prayer and ask for His help. Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your Word. We ask now that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would give us growing understanding of Your Word, growing desire to put Your Word into practice, and a growing ability to do that. For your glory and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a 19th century Methodist preacher who in 1818 was preaching at a camp revival type meeting in all places of the United States and Kentucky. You see this, this man, Reverend Cartwright, was born in Virginia but moved west to Kentucky. He was converted at age 16 from what, according to his autobiography, was kind of a rough life. He w believed he was called to the ministry. He became what was known in the Methodist church in those days a circuit rider, going from place to place to preach the good news of Jesus. So uh, this Reverend Cartwright, in October 1818, uh, was getting ready to preach, and he had got word that General Andrew Jackson of the War of 1812 fame was going to be in the gathering. And he said this when he stepped up to preach, I understand General Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guided, excuse me, guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. The crowd was shocked. Did Andrew Jackson repent? We don't know, but afterwards, the story goes that General Jackson shook his hand and said this, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Now that was some bold preaching, wasn't it? Identifying him by name. Well, I think that's a good illustration of the message that John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, of whom Jesus said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. My friends, as we will see, John was not guarded in his remarks. And that's good news for us. John the Baptist the forerunner of the Messiah, the advance man, the man who went out front to clear the way for the coming promised Messiah. Now Luke, in his gospel, provides more details about the life and ministry of John the Baptist than others. And last week, we listened to the first words of Jesus recorded in Luke. Remember Jesus in the temple at age 12? Well, today, we're going to listen to the first words 
of the last Old Testament prophet. And for Advent, we're going to circle back to chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 38, which will cover both the birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, as we progress through Luke, it's going to be important to keep a few things in mind. Let's recall Luke's purpose. Now, since we all have our doubts at times, Luke writes to provide Theophilus, he writes to provide us certainty about the person and work of Jesus. It's not an arrogant certainty, not an overconfident certainty, but it's rather a humble certainty and sureness. And um, Luke's got a plan to accomplish his purpose. He wants to write an orderly account, a narrative account that's historically accurate, thoroughly researched, and well-organized. And as we walk our way through Luke, we'll see it's well-organized to show who Jesus is and what he came to do. And what did Jesus come to do? In his own words, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And one of the beautiful things about Luke is we will see all kinds of people who are lost in all kinds of ways being saved by Jesus. You see, Luke wants his reader then and now to know for sure that Jesus is for real. And if you know for sure that Jesus is for real, then you will know that he is with you by his spirit. And if you know that Jesus is with you through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, then you will be sure, in the words of Paul to the Roman church, you'll be sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can be sure. You will be sure. In a moment, we will hear these words. The word of God came to John. The word of God came to John. When the word of God came to the prophets, Remember, think the old prophets, um, Isaiah, Ezekiel, others. Their, their calling was to announce the word, declare the word, the word, proclaim the word. But if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that the word of God had not come to any prophet for public proclamation since Malachi, about 460 B.C. So it had been almost 500 years of silence, as it were, from God. But the word of God came to John. And the word that God gave John was a word of coming salvation, a word of general warning, and a word of particular application. Join with me as I read verses 1 through 6 of Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the regions of Etruria and Trachontus, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of 
hood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke locates the ministry of John the Baptist on the world stage and in biblical history. And the time is probably 28 to 29 AD. And you heard in that list political leaders, Roman officials. You heard the names of Jewish leaders, religious officials. And remember, Luke was concerned about historical accuracy. He was concerned to provide credibility for his account so that Theophilus then and we now could have a growing certainty that what he writes about Jesus is true. Because what he writes about politics and the religious world of the day, it's accurate. You see here with the arrival of John the Baptist on the scene, with the word of God coming to this last Old Testament prophet, you see the old age of law and promise ending and a new age of grace and fulfillment beginning. A number of commentators have mentioned that you see this list of powerful leaders. Who of them has influence now? Apart from being written in scripture, would we even know of them? Would we remember them? No. Once again, the background highlighting the ministry of John the Baptist, who highlights, of course, the ministry of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And we read that the word came to John when he was in the wilderness, and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, at this time, uh, Jews would baptize Gentiles if Gentiles or non-Jews wanted to, to join in and be part of Israel, be part of the Jewish community. There was a ritual rite, a ceremonial rite, and it was a water baptism. So the Jews of the day were familiar with baptism. It was for non-Jews to come into the people of Israel. But John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to Jews, to the children of Abraham. And it, was, it would be shocking. John is calling on Jews to undergo a rite that they saw fit only for those on the outside, not on the inside. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, of course, being a change of mind, a change of direction. A, a repentant heart is one that is open and turned to the living God. We see this quote from Isaiah chapter 40. You see, Isaiah the prophet not only 
pointed forward to the Messiah. We think of the servant songs of the Messiah. But Isaiah also pointed forward to John the Baptist, to the forerunner, to the advance man of Jesus. And only Luke includes Isaiah 40 verses 4 and 5. Um, The others include verse 3, but only Luke includes it. And he's, it's very poetic. I, uh, who is it? Handel's Messiah, right? You read this passage and you almost want to sing, right? One of the movements of Handel's Messiah about what uh, uh, mountains being made low, um, valleys coming up, uh, the crooked becoming straight. It's, it's very poetic. It, it's, it's, it's image saying that the way for the promised Messiah is being cleared. It's the way that kings returning from battle, conquering, came into a place and the way was made clear for the king. In other words, it was the infrastructure project. It was money was finally allocated to to repair things so that the king could have a smooth entry. And that's what we're seeing from Isaiah 40. Now for Isaiah, that initial fulfillment of seeing God's salvation was deliverance from exile under Cyrus the Great. But here, when Luke includes this last verse, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, Luke is wanting to emphasize that it's the Lord himself who is going to bring salvation. It's God's salvation. And this salvation is going to be universal in character. All flesh shall see. All flesh shall see. It's it's going out to the Gentiles. And we saw that in Acts when we walked through Acts. All kinds of people are saved who are lost in all kinds of ways. So here in these first six verses is world history and Old Testament hope. And here is the encouragement of promises made that are promises being kept. Now this word that God gave John was not only a word of coming salvation, it was also a word of general warning. Let's uh, listen to verses seven through nine. He, that is John, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This word of warning in general is basically this. You need to repent. You need to repent. You see, John is proclaiming this baptism and crowds are coming out to him to be baptized by him. It's important. John is going throughout the region But as he proclaims this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, people are coming to him. People are being moved to to receive 
his baptism. Again, they would be familiar. A water baptism, converts to Judaism are ceremonially admitted to a new faith if they adopt Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But again, they're coming and it should be shocking. John is calling for Jews to be baptized. John's baptism is a one-time rite in preparation for God's approaching salvation. It's representing openness to God and his ways. John is putting people on notice. Now, John's baptism is not the same as, as Christian baptism. You see, John's baptism looks forward to the arrival of, of, of Jesus and the arrival of the Spirit. And, and Christian baptism looks back at the arrival of Jesus and the provision already of the Spirit. So it's important to keep that in mind. Well, there's really a couple of warnings How does John view the crowd? Look at verse 7. How does he view these people that are coming to him? He calls them vipers, snakes, evil and destructive in character. In other words, they're running from the fire, but they haven't changed. I mean, if you remember, I think it was what, Paul on an island of Malta maybe, when, when out of the fire came a snake and latched onto Paul's arm. You see, no viper wants to be burned up, right? A snake's going to run, but a snake can't change. It's avoiding the fire. And he asked this question, who warns you to flee from the wrath by just merely coming to receive baptism? Isn't it going to be more? Who said that you're just going to be able to avoid the wrath by this ritual act? But he moves on with a a warning because in verse 8, we see what John calls the crowd to do and not to do. He says, do this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's no use in being baptized without a true willingness to turn from sin that's expressed in actions. So he says this, do this. But notice he also says, don't do this. And when he refers to Abraham, he's already cutting off an argument that may have been made. He's saying, don't trust in natural descent. Don't trust in your privileged position as sons of Abraham. You see, religious heritage has its advantages, to be sure. But it's not good enough. It's not a guarantee. And Paul would say that, of course, to the Romans. Is there an advantage in being a Jew? Yes, absolutely. But it's not a guarantee of salvation. And notice in verse 9, there's this image. And John is using this image of axe and root to tell the crowd that this is an urgent matter. It can't wait There's a promise of a certain and imminent judgment. The absence of the good fruit of repentance can only lead to judgment. It's as if the tree has been chopped and whittled down and all that's left is one final blow to take out the root that's holding the tree into the ground and the tree topples over. 
before we dismiss this crowd, this crowd that's just received this general warning, remember, they're coming. They're coming to John. They want to be baptized. Something in them is being stirred up. What was your motivation for coming this morning? I mean, really, ask yourself, what was your motivation? I think there can be several motivations. And at the root of that is God is doing something in you, stirring you up. God was doing something in this crowd. He was stirring them up. They were coming to John. But John didn't stop with a general warning. He he followed up with a word of particular application and response to the one question that he was being asked by many. And what is that question? What shall we do? What shall we do? Let's um, look now at this word of application in particular, verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. If that general warning was you need to repent, this word of application and summary is this is what repentance looks like. Now these verses, 10 through 14, are unique to Luke. They're not in Matthew, they're not in Mark, they're not in John. And if you're doing Bible study and you come across something in the Gospels that's unique, that should grab your attention. And you should ask the question, why? Why is it there? Repentance. Well, it's not just an attitude, but it's a corresponding action. It's the hidden root and the visible fruit. You see, Luke is now showing us that John is saying that there are concrete examples in life of the effect that repentance should have. Did you hear it three times? What shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? Now this question is dangerous, but necessary. It's a dangerous question to ask, but it's a necessary question to ask. Now it's dangerous, not in the sense of somehow saying that salvation is found in what you do. You see, I think some of us who have come in to realize that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's the, basic, it's the work of Christ. Sometimes the, we get afraid of the question, well, what do we need to do? 
because we're like, uh-oh, we're going to slip back into some kind of works-based relationship with God. No. We're not talking about that danger. We're talking about this danger. In the sense that when you ask this type of question, you've got to be prepared to receive the answer. I don't know how many times I've gotten myself into trouble by asking a question, right? They always say, before you ask a question, be prepared for the answer. You may not like it, be prepared. Let's hear what John the Baptist said to these three groups. The first audience was the crowds or people generally. See, the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And what did John say? If you've got two tunics, you've got two articles of clothing, how many can you wear at once? One, share it with somebody in need. If you've got food, share it. Show generosity to one another. Share with others. You know, this is like a summary of Old Testament ethics. God's people were told to care for the poor, care for those in need. The crowd say, what shall we do? In a word, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. We've talked about this before in 1 John. We say we love God, but we can't see him. But, but we hate our brother whom we see. How, how can that be? What shall we do? Be generous. Share. Think about someone else other than yourself. Don't hoard. Don't work to accumulate. Give. But then there's another audience. Notice the tax collectors. Ah, the tax collectors, notoriously dishonest and despised. And what John says to them is based on that they have a strong temptation to abuse their authority to enrich themselves. Don't do it. Be honest. Be ethical. Be honorable. A strong temptation to take what authority they have and abuse it and hurt people. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say quit. He doesn't say you can't be a tax collector any longer. No. Act honestly. Act justly. Serve properly. Serve honorably. And there's another group, soldiers. Well, who would those be? Well, even though it's the majority of Jews that are coming to John, no, in the midst, in Palestine, there's Roman occupying soldiers, and they're in there too. See, the tax collectors were notoriously dishonest and despised, and the soldiers were feared. They had the power of Rome, the power of the emperor. There's a strong temptation to abuse their authority to enrich themselves. Don't extort money. 
Don't use the power of the sword to get from someone what you shouldn't get. Notice he didn't say resign, quit. You can't be a soldier if you're repentant. No, act honestly, act justly, serve properly, serve honorably. Now, what do we see with all these groups, the crowds, the tax collectors and the soldiers? What do we see? Well, we see just everybody in general. And then we see kind of a hated class among God's people who were kind of sellouts to the Romans, abusing their fellow Israelites. And you see foreigners, pagans, Gentiles, all three. All three responses from John have to do with how to treat people. Isn't that interesting? How to treat people in the midst of great temptations when it comes to money, power, and control. You know, sometimes John seems a bit crazy based on descriptions from other gospel accounts, right? The, the, the eating locust and what camels, hair out in the wilderness. I mean, he sounds a bit crazy, a bit radical, but, but, but John is no revolutionary. He's not asking people to give up their jobs. He's asking them to work honestly and with integrity. But yes, John really does advocate something radical, but not in the way we often think of radical. Something radical meaning at the root level. You see, radical means the root. He's going to say that the root is the issue. The heart is the issue. And of course, he's just leading on to the ministry of Jesus. You see, John is saying that true repentance requires a change of ethical behavior. Uh, He said earlier, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And here is him saying, this is what some of that fruit looks like. See, John is answering the question that Francis Schaeffer raises in 1976 in his book, How Should We Then Live? Did you notice that John's instructions primarily, of course, are going to God's people? Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. John is not concerned really about other people. He's concerned about those coming to him. He wants them to look in the mirror. He wants them to assess their lives. He's not asking them to worry about other people. He's asking them to consider themselves. He's asking them to say, is there fruit of honesty, of integrity, of justice, of mercy? You know, Paul would flesh this out later in his letter to the Galatians. Fruit of the Spirit. See, the Spirit, of course, gives the gift of repentance and faith. And here is fruit being born. 
Luke is the only one that includes this. And it's all about ethics. It's all about how you treat people. Church, you want to know how we can witness to the world? How we treat people. I mean, we all know out there it's a divided, aggressive world out there. And for the world to look on people who give the extra clothing that they have, to give the extra food they have, to do their business honestly and with integrity and are just honorable people, you think that is a witness? You better believe it. Especially in our culture, in our society today. And the cool thing is, is when somebody sees that and asks you, why are you like that? How are you like that? My friends, that is a door to share the transforming power of the gospel. Because we know there's no way we could be like that apart from God's work in us. See, John is preparing people to meet Jesus sooner or later. He's preparing them to meet Jesus sooner as Savior or later as judge. Our text that we just spent a few minutes going through gives us information. I mean, to be sure, God wants us to know who it is that made the final preparations for the arrival of Jesus and what he did. But God also wants us to know that repentance is not just some kind of invisible attitude of the heart, but it's a visible action of the hand. But my friends, much more than providing information, our text offers us an invitation. An invitation to recognize warnings are a blessing And repentance is a saving grace that leads to life. What is repentance unto life? Our catechism says repentance unto life is a saving grace. You see, this invitation can lead to the transformation of your life. My friends, can you believe what a circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Kentucky in 1818 said to General Andrew Jackson and the future president, the seventh president of the United States? Can you believe it? Do you believe what God's word tells you? Right here, right now. Have you, have I asked the question, what shall I do? As we work our way through Luke, you will see over and over again, people say, what shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? People that ask that question recognize they need something that they don't have. They need some some ability that they don't have, some desire that they don't have. They they need a new heart. My friends, do you have the kind of heart that will recognize Jesus and respond to him 
That's what John was doing. He was preparing the way by setting people up to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and to respond to him as the Messiah. If you don't have that heart, ask God to give you that kind of heart. A heart that not only is a new heart, but a heart that by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit produces fruit, does good to others. A heart that points people to the one and only Savior who has come now to save, who will return to judge. I mean, it's a striking image. The axe is really at the root. But Jesus in his parable speaks of, let's give it a little more time before it's cut down. My friends, as we read in Acts, today is the day of salvation. Today, the invitation is offered. Come to Jesus. Find rest in him. Find life in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Our natural instinct is to recoil when told that we need to repent. And yet, Father, it's a blessing to know that we are dead and need to be made alive. It is a blessing to know that we are lost and need to be found It is a blessing to know that what we could never do in and of ourselves, Jesus has done in our place and on our behalf. So Father, be pleased to work in us preparation so that we could always hear the call of Jesus to come to him and find rest in him. And we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.